HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by the Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York, partnering with Grow NYC on a pilot project to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets. For more information, visit christmastreesny.org. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to Eating Matters, a weekly conversation about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm Kim Kessler with the Resnick Program for Food, Law, and Policy at UCLA School of Law, and we are broadcasting live from Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. Joining me today as co-host is my co-producer, Jenny Liut. Hi, Jenna. Hi. And today we're going to be talking about pet food, which is a significant part of our food system that many of us don't think about. Pet food is a huge business involving many major food companies and also a reflection of our overall food culture, with a growth recently in pet owner interest in organic food, gluten-free food, and so on. And then there is the question of pet food ethics. What should pet owners, who are obviously concerned with animal welfare, be thinking about when making food decisions for their pets? We're going to be delving into all of these questions today with three guests. First, we'll be welcoming Craig Giamona, who is a reporter for the consumer team at Bloomberg News and recently wrote about pet food trends, as well as Jackson Landers, who is an eco-activist, journalist, and author of the book Eating Aliens, One Man's Adventure Hunting, Adventures Hunting and Eating Invasive, Invasive Species. Later in the program, we'll be joined by Celia Kutcher, who is a fellow host here on Heritage Radio Network of Animal Instinct. She spent four years in a holistic vet's office where she worked as the in-house nutritionist. But first, we've got Craig and Jackson, and I want to welcome you both to the program. Thanks for having us. Hi, thank you. So, Craig, we wanted to start off with just a kind of big-picture take on the pet food industry, which you recently reported on. Can you give us some sense of how big the industry is and who the major players are? Yeah, uh, so, we, I mean, it's, it's, it's about a 20... It's about a $24 billion industry, you know, roughly in the U.S. And, you know, the big companies, uh, Nestle, Mars, Colgate, and Smucker would be the big four. And Smucker just got into the industry this year with a $6 billion purchase of a company called Big Heart Pet Food Brands. You know, Mars and Nestle are two of the biggest food companies in the world. So you have these big, gigantic food companies that really dominate uh, the space in the U.S. And, you know, one of the interesting things really is the last couple of years is that the growth 
has really come from the premium end of the market. If you look at the stats, there there hasn't been a ton of growth in the overall amount of pet food sold. You know, pet ownership has kind of plateaued in the last couple of years, as I think as some of younger people like millennials um, delay household formation. But there's been dollar volume growth, and that's coming from people buying more expensive stuff, which is kind of an interesting trend that we've looked at lately. Um, Craig, so those seem like I mean, those are obviously big food companies. You mentioned Nestle Mars. What are some examples of the brands that they own that you think people might not necessarily realize? Well, so Purina is the big Nestle one. Um, Mars makes Imes, um, and Colgate has their Science Diet, which um, is a brand that they've owned for a few years. It really has kind of fallen on hard times, and they're sort of they've turned it around again with sort of this focus on like premium and basically stuff that you would hear with people food. You know, their big pitch lately has been that their dog food will help your dog lose weight. The trend um, that people talk about is the humanization of pets. So the, the basic um, logic is that people are treating pets like members of the family, and that. They want to do things for their pets that they would do for themselves. So that's what this whole rise of, you know, organic and paleo and things like that. The people, basically things people are doing for themselves are taking to their pets. Is there really paleo? (laughs) What's that? Is there really a paleo pet food? There is. Um, you'll, you've seen in the last couple of years a tremendous um, surge in like wolves appearing on dog food and big marketing around kind of what would your dog have eaten when they were a wolf in the wild. Um, you know, a big thing that this company something in a bag. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. But so it's um, you know raw is a big movement right. in right. pet food. So it's, you know that's kind of the idea, and it sort of is paleo for pets. As you if say I could this, jump in here. This is Jackson speaking. You know. Uh, your dog isn't a wolf. You know, I've done a quite. I just wrote a feature on the history of the eastern coyote wolf, and just have done a lot of research on on um, you know evolution of of canids. And you know, domestic dogs were first diverged from wolves like between twenty seven thousand and forty thousand years ago. Their diets, their stomachs have evolved to eating starches, and they've accompanied us as we've developed agriculture and been eating our, our scraps. If, if you try to feed a, a, a dog the same diet as a gray wolf, most breeds are not going to be healthy. It's, it's the reason, one of the reasons we got interested in this for this topic for the program was partially just seeing the ads, which reflect what you've been talking about a bit, Craig, like look, flipping through a magazine and seeing these pictures of really like farm to table and, uh, you know, a meal, a salmon and asparagus and a nice brown rice, which is like the pet's meal, and just this sort of fascination that's moved, transferred from humans into the pet food market. And we, in preparation for today's show, Jenna actually interviewed a few owners just to hear about their own experiences in shopping for pet food. And the first one, I think, Jenna, can you introduce the first? I know yeah. that the pet's name is Chicken. Mm-hmm. But. Yes, it's it's Melissa with chicken. So we'll just listen to to her. Hi, I'm Melissa and my husband Justin and I have a three-year-old Havanese rescue named Chicken. Uh, That's an adorable name. What does chicken eat, Melissa? Well, ironically, chicken is allergic to chicken. So we've tried several different types of food from making him boiled chicken and green beans and all those things. And that's why we found out he's allergic to chicken. Um, but now he eats sort of regular canned food. It's natural balance, limited ingredient, and it's the beef flavor. And we do mainly the wet food and we sometimes mix it with the dry food of, uh, I think it's called origin six fish. And how did you, how did you select that brand of pet food? 
Well, when we first rescued Chicken, he had some stomach issues and was kind of throwing up all the time. So we tried a lot of different (laughs) um, types of food, wet, dry, mixing it together, cooking. um, And we went to the pet store that we go to and asked them what was sort of the, you know, healthiest and most limited ingredient um, type of food. So there weren't too many preservatives or any you know, other yucky parts of the meat. Great. And so you tr- you've tried cooking for him before? We did. And I don't even cook for my own husband or myself. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, we were boiling chicken for him, green beans, rice, sweet potato. We really were um, giving him the VIP treatment. But to um, my surprise and happiness, he didn't like that. <laughs> so we just uh, give him the canned stuff, and it's great. However, we do chop up fresh vegetables and fruits for him, for him every few days, and he loves to snack on cucumbers, uh, organic apples, and bell peppers. Well, listen, a high-maintenance pup for high-maintenance parents, you know. So, Craig, I'd love to hear just your reaction, how that melded with the consumer trends that you researched and reported on. That, that's exactly it. I mean, that, that sums it up, right? This is a person who says that she doesn't cook for herself, doesn't cook for her husband or partner, and but is going through those steps for her dog. So, I mean, that's kind of what these companies have been after. Like I said, I mean, the overall sales of units of pet food have been flat the last five, six years, but the growth has been on the high end, and these companies and their marketing are capitalizing on people wanting to do what they think is the best for you know, for their pets, and that's where they've gone after, and that's exactly the person, and, you know, chicken is exactly the dog that they've gone after, is everything we've heard about in, you know, people, food, with the move towards organic and natural and less processed, you know, the the idea that's out there, and, you know, whether it's valid or not, I mean, I think some of it is, is clearly just marketing, but that's what they've capitalized on, and that's what people want, and that's where the, the growth has been. We should have probably prefaced um, that all of these clips will be, will be playing, will be um, through people we know. This is going to be a very Brooklyn, New York audience, <laughs> maybe a more biased uh, uh, population um, size. But um, I wanted to talk a little bit more now about how pet food gets made. And I'm wondering, um, Jackson, if you can tell us a little bit about that and what, you, what we can typically find in your ordinary can of pet food. Yeah, most, most dry or canned pet food, the stuff that's not looking for the, the, the top end of the market, it's, it's, it's basically the stuff in the food system that we have no other use for. Uh, so, for example, when a cow is processed in a, in a USDA-approved facility, we're only able to use about 50% of that carcass to make people food. And you've got a lot of stuff left over. You've got, you know, the hide, you've got the udders, you've got the digestive system and the brain and all kinds of stuff. And that's all technically beef. And the same thing with processing um, uh, poultry and pigs. And there's all this material left. And when you look at that stuff, it, it is disgusting. It's not pleasant to look at. And it gets this together with a lot of other material potentially gets sent to rendering plants where they sort of they, they cook it at um, in between, I think, 220 and 270 degrees for a long time until all the things kind of separate out. You can't really tell what was what anymore. Um, and so that's, that's what goes into it. And then, of course, you also have byproducts. You may have things from, you know, um, uh, rice and, and, and grain that go into it. But as far as the animal products, it's the stuff that society has no other use for except maybe fertilizer. Is that true across all brands? No, not every brand. The higher-end brands are more likely to, be, to use... Um, 
I'm tempted to say higher quality. Okay, everyone's going to say higher quality ingredients. And when I first started researching this for, for a feature in Slate uh, a few years back, I thought of it as higher quality too. But why why inherently is the you know the T-bone better quality than um, say the lining of the stomach? You know, one kind of grosses us out and the other doesn't. I don't think it makes a big difference to the dog. <laughs> what what do you? I mean, I think that was a big. Th- thing that came across to me in your piece is the role of social construction in how we think about what we want the pets to eat. So what do you think the role of that is? And you, you know, even talking about these, these, these things that go into pet food as disgusting, like, is that in any way problematic? It's, it's they're disgusting to, uh, to probably a typical person on the street in Brooklyn. You know, in our society, we don't eat a whole lot of offal. You know, that's a specialized thing. You know, if you're, you're taking, you know, kidneys and stomach and intestines, well, there are places, you know, I've, I've been in Kenya where they have cow and, and goat intestines chopped up and, and cooked almost like noodles, and it's a delicacy. Um, so I think some of this is cultural. And the more I looked at it, the more I thought about it, like what, what, if we're not going to make it into pet food and the pets seem perfectly happy to eat it, what should we, should we throw it away? Is that, is that moral? You know, if, if, if there's a moral problem, it's that we have this industrial system that creates so much waste, that we have these industrial factories that, you know, sort of Auschwitz for chickens and pigs that they go through. When they ha- and I, I think the crime isn't using the material that comes out of it. What else are you going to do? It? I think if there's a problem, it's the way, that, it's the, the way that our society deals with animals. It's the fact that we have these animal shelters. We, we're, we're producing more cats and dogs than, than we can take care of. Because uh, we don't spay and neuter, and and they, you know, uh, Los Angeles County alone produces something like 200 tons of dead pets from their shelters. They're euthanized every month. Those go to rendering plants that may or may not be used in dog food, but dead pets can end up in pet food. Uh, that's the moral problem I have. You know, whether or not you know, whether my dog eats it or not, he does. He seems happy either way. I think the issue of ethics in uh, pet food is an interesting one that you're certainly getting into. And I think before we delve into that further, maybe we have another clip that's sort of an interesting take on this from a, a, a vegan pet, an owner of a vegan pet. So we're going to hear from what was Allie. 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 Yeah. Hi, my name is Allie. I have a dog named Ennis. He will be 10 years old. Uh, on January 1st, and I adopted him from the Humane Society in Atlanta, Georgia, when he was 10, when he was 10 weeks old. And he's a... He is a mutt. Uh, he's about 50 to 55 pounds. Um, he's all black with little white patches on his toes and on his chest, and um, yeah, he's definitely got some lab in him. He's got some pit bull, maybe some chow. And what do you feed MS? Ennis eats a kibble called V-Dog, and I um, have been feeding him that for about two years, and he gets a cup in the morning and a cup at night, and in addition, he gets some organic pumpkin puree with his kibble at each meal. What is, what's V-Dog? I've never heard of that. So V-Dog, it's a kibble that, um, it's been around, I'm not sure how long, but it, it, for a long time, you could only order it online. And it's a kibble that's allergen-free, so there's no soy or wheat um, in it, and obviously no animal products. And because it's, it's vegan, it's vegan. And the great thing about V-Dog is that the company founders are vegan, and they really believe in 
um, healthy vegan food for dogs and that dogs can thrive on it. Um, previously, I'd been feeding him um, this other brand of dog food that had a vegetarian um, option, but one of the issues is that they were always having recalls due to contamination at their factory, um, and I haven't had a single issue since he's been on B-Dog with any contamination issues, because where they make it, they're only making vegan dog food. How does Ennis feel about being a vegan? He loves it. I, I will say, though, that I think Ennis is more of a freegan because sometimes on the street he will go for, you know, a stray chicken bone or something. But overall, he's really happy. He loves um, a lot of vegan foods like sweet potatoes and chickpeas and French fries because everyone loves French fries. And, Who doesn't? Yeah. I mean... He's very happy. He has a very shiny coat, which people often comment on. And he also, um, I run marathons, and he, he gets to train with me. And he's he runs usually in any training season up to, he can run up to 10 or 11 miles. So, wow. you know, he's he's very healthy. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, how did he become a vegan? Was he always a vegan? So he wasn't. When I became vegan about six years ago, I started thinking about transitioning him and so after about a year of me being vegan I actually got him and my family dog um, to be on that previous kibble that I mentioned and then when I heard about V-Dog I switched him to that and in both times when he went vegan and then when he switched to a different vegan kibble it was a it was phasing in so he would get a mix of both foods so that it wasn't a sudden switch and I did a lot of research about him being on a vegan diet because there's a lot of conversations about that in the vegan community and also just sort of you know is it safe is it healthy and um i reached out to i knew four different veterinarians and i'd say three of four three out of four of them were very supportive and said that the literature was pretty clear that it could be safe and healthy um and there's there's still research happening on sort of long-term outcomes of having your dog on a on a vegan diet and a lot of people feel really strongly that dogs are carnivores and this and that but um that really hasn't proven to be true and um he's been really healthy and really happy and if he wasn't you know, I would have, I would have obviously, you know, I care about animals and I care about him. And if it wasn't healthy for him, I would have adjusted, but he's really, really, um, done a great job on this, on this food. So this is an interesting, it's the first vegan dog. And this is the first vegan dog that I personally had heard of, but, um, in tapping back to our broader conversation, if there's a trend towards first, more conscious, thoughtful feeding of pets, of healthier, better produced items or quote unquote, better produced items. Is there an also trend towards more ethical eating paralleling what we do see, uh, in a rise in consumer consciousness about the ethics of their own eating? Have either of you come across that in your research of this issue? I've, I've, I've seen it. Although I, as far as a vegan dog is concerned, I, that's not a real trend. I mean, something things that that's something people do. I'm sure if you surveyed, you know, accredited veterinarians in America, I doubt you'd find very many that think that's a responsible way to to um, to feed a carnivore. Um, but what I, you know, in addition to being a you know a, a science and outdoor writer, I also teach um, seasonally. I teach adult beginners how to hunt for food. I you know I have people that come to me to learn how to hunt deer, and I take them out one on one, and I've taught group classes. And so I, I've, you, my students are people who think about where their food comes from. And I've actually had quite a few students who were self professed vegans and vegetarians that wanted to learn how to hunt and, um, and butcher deer in order to feed it to their dogs. In some cases, raw, more often cooking it and mixing it with rice. 
and my, my dogs have all passed away now, but seasonally I would feed my dogs on a diet of, uh, of that. When it was raw, if they ate a whole meal of it, they would, uh, they would actually just throw it up. Um, but, but cooked, they, uh, you know, they, they, they took it very well. And I mean, I feel pretty good about that because it's a way of dropping out of the factory farm system and knowing that, you know, that I don't have to worry about, um, you know, any kind of, um, of contaminants, certainly. Um, but there were, I did have quite a few students who were interested in doing that. So that's, that's out there. That's certainly one, appro- one approach that's not for everyone uh, as, as far as um, uh, ethical dog food is concerned. Uh, Jackson, I want to circle back to what we were talking about before the clip, um, which is something you write about in your article about the fact that there are there is often euthanized domestic uh, animals in yeah. the pet food supply, um, and you argue that it's a good use of this meat. Um, I'm I'm wondering what the backlash has been, if any, uh, in response to that article, and also I'm wondering if you can respond to the fact that uh, Pet Food Institute, which is a major industry trade group, categorically states on its website that no rendered cats or dogs are used in its pet food. Um, I think they're sort of kidding themselves. I, th- I think they're honest in the sense that they are not aware specifically of any specific rendered pets that go in their dog food. But when you look at the way that rendering plants are regulated, um, I, there's no way that you can say that nationally because um, there, there's so many differences from one state to another. There are some states where it is illegal to do that. Like, for example, in California, you can't take... Um, rendered um, uh, what they call meat and bone meal that, that can contain um, uh, pets that went into that, that rendering process along with all sorts of other protein. You can't sell it as pet food in California. But once it becomes meat and bone meal, you can export it out of California and it can be used as, uh, in, in pet food. And, and it doesn't say, like, whether a batch of meat and bone meal has dead pets in it or not. It doesn't say. Sometimes it might be all poultry and, 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 um, and cows. Sometimes it might have zoo animals in it. You can't test this. There, there, you really can't test the, you know, the crude protein rate. Um, the, the DNA is all destroyed by this. You can't do DNA testing. The, um, the crude protein um, percentage is going to look the same whether it's done with a you know, mix of, of pork and poultry or whether there are some dead pets in it. So it's, just, it's one of the things that's unknowable. These plants aren't inspected um, the same way that you know, a, a meat processing plant for humans are. There's, there's basically no oversight. So I think they're kind of halfway honest when they say that. It is accurate that they don't have specific knowledge of it coming in, but when you look at the way that the rendering business uh, works, it definitely gets in. Not every brand of pet food, not in every state, but it's out there. Craig, do you have a sense of how the business works from a profitability perspective? Is it important to be growing the high-end part of the market? And um, what what's dangerous for – what are – reputational risk factors for the companies that are working in the space? I mean, it's definitely a profitable space. And, I, you know, I think that they sort of, these big companies will go where the customers are. Their sense is that this is what people want, and, you know, the numbers bear that out. Um, I do think you can, there's sort of a saturation point. Some analysts said that maybe we've already gotten there. I mean, there's just been a flood of these new products, you know, in smaller companies. I mean, you know, Nestle has bought companies. There's been a lot of acquisitions in that space. So you do wonder, you know, if if something has to give. Honestly, you would think like a recession or some kind of economic downturn wouldn't be good for this because you just think at a certain point people might say, you know, my dog was fine with kibble that was 15 bucks a bag. Why are we now spending double that amount for something that's essentially just being marketed to us as better and might not be any better 
for the dog. So that's the kind of thing that I think could 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 come back around. I mean, right now the numbers have gone up and up, so they've all flooded to that area. But you do wonder if there's if there's sort of an inflection point where there's just saturation in the market, then you know maybe people push away from that a little bit. This connection between the human food system and the pet, the domesticated animal food system, is is something that's you know come up again and again in this conversation in both of your research and writing. And one factor as well there is the health piece because you see the growing rates of obesity and diet-related disease in humans, of course, but that's also an issue in pets, right? That's also an issue that you see a lot of marketing around. Did, is that something, was that a prevalent factor as well, Craig? Yeah, it was a prevalent factor just, again, as an extension of this whole humanization of pets. So I want to do what I do for myself. I want to do for my pet the disease or problem that I have. My pet has that. So like um, Colgate with their, with um, Science Diet has capitalized on, on that tremendously. You know, they have ads out there that essentially play on the guilt factor. I mean, to be honest with you, that, that um, you know, your dog is overweight and you should buy this stuff because it'll it'll help the dog lose weight. So it's just a, absolutely an extension of um, the conversation that we've been having and sort of these human trends all arriving in the, the pet food market. So we're going to turn more to a little bit of a deeper dive into the health factor with Celia after the break. But at first, I just want to thank both of you for joining us today, sharing your perspective and your research and what I think is a really under-discussed area of our food system. So thanks, thanks to you both for joining. Thanks for having Thank you. And we'll take a short break. We'll be back. Ever wonder where your Christmas tree came from? Now you don't have to. New York State-grown Christmas trees are now available in New York City. Trees grown on farms here in New York State are harvested just a few days before arriving to the city. Trees cut close to home stay fresh longer. And trees cut close to home travel less, which reduces fuel consumption of delivery vehicles. Did you know that buying a real tree helps to sustain agriculture in New York State by supporting local farmers and keeping important open space and agriculture production? The Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York is partnering with Grow NYC on a pilot project to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets in Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. So when you shop local this holiday season, you can include the tree in that list. For more information and a full list of locations, visit christmastreesny.org. still paying attention? Are you there? Hello, 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 hello. I'm talking to you. Hi. Hey, this is Jack Inslee. I'm the executive producer here at Heritage Radio Network. I've been here at the station since 2009, and I cannot believe just how much this network has grown over that time. We've been able to grow because of donations from people like you. So if you're enjoying this, if you laughed, if you learned something... 
contribute anything. A dollar, two dollars, ten dollars, a hundred dollars, a thousand dollars. Anything counts. And trust me, we'll appreciate seeing your name come through on the donations. So consider visiting heritageradionetwork.org. Click on that little beating heart, the donate button, and show us you care. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Um, we're back on Eating Matters, talking about pet food. Joining the show now is Celia Kutcher, ho- host of Animal Instinct here on Heritage um, and former nutritionist in a holistic vet's office. Celia, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Great. We're excited to have you. Um, and before we kind of delve into, we've got a bunch of questions for you, I wanted to follow up on what we were talking about pre- with our previous guests about the humanization of pet food with a, a personal story um, mm-hmm. about what my mom feeds her two dogs. Um, she has two uh, toy poodles named uh-huh. Benjamin and Franklin and um, <laughs> and she feeds them she does feed them some some dry food life's abundance made by a vet she says it has no corn sugar wheat and it's quote natural um, but primarily she feeds them people food so she gives them cottage, cottage cheese in the morning and she's very she wants to be very clear that it doesn't have salt in it and it uh, it is low fat so okay. <laughs> they get that and then um, organic meat or grass-fed beef, wild-caught salmon, sweet potatoes, green beans, and blueberries for dessert. Very. (laughs) Your mom is one of the type of people that I always say that I want to be their pet. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm all about that. I'm willing to go to her house for dinner anytime and eat with her dogs. (laughs) (laughs) I I pointed out that one of her sons eats, like, fried chicken once a week, and she's like, well, I can't can't control that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So so continuing kind of um, towards our focus on... On, on nutrition and people who are very focused on that in in selecting the you know pet uh, food for their animals, we want to play one final clip, and this is going to be Mike talking about what okay. he feeds his um, dogs and cats. Also, cool. Hi, my name's Mike. My wife Jackie and I uh, we have three pets. We have a dog Maggie, who's two and a half years old. She's a mutt, um, has some terrier in her. And then we have two house cats, two long-haired domestic house cats. And Mike, what do you feed? What do you feed um, Maggie? Uh, we feed Maggie uh, freeze-dried duck meat uh, from Stella and Chewy's. What? Um, what is? Is that wet? Wet or dry food? I can't picture that. Uh, well, it is. It's. I guess it's wet because we rehydrate it when we give it to her. We just add water. Um, okay. Which is one of the attractive things because then it gives her uh, more water in her diet because she doesn't really drink enough or as much as we think she should. She's not very uh, thirst-driven. She goes to the bowl every now and again, but it's good to give her as much water as we could possibly give her. So. And and why duck? How did you decide on, on duck? Uh, we had been staying at a friend's house in Fire Island, and they fed – they had a much smaller dog, and they were feeding her – uh, that same brand, and we gave a little taste to Maggie, and she loved it. So from there, we went to the store and started buying it in larger quantities. Got it. And what about what about treats? Any particular treats for Maggie that she loves? You know, I'm, I'm sort of a sucker for packaging. Um, when we do give her treats, we try and stay away from the major brands or things that have a lot of additives and preservatives, and we tend to give her things that um, are a little bit... Mm, <clears throat> I guess 
just just better for her, better uh, ingredients, you know, all natural kind of stuff. So that'll it'll range from uh, wellness brand, I think, is probably the more popular stuff to the smaller sort of mom and pop kind of uh, brands that you see in in uh, pet stores around the neighborhood. All right, and what about what about the cats? What do they like to eat? Uh, we feed. We were feeding both the cats wellness dry food, but uh, one has developed a little bit of a weight problem, and we've <laughs> been feeding her natural balance uh, wet food, and it's been uh, it's been doing really well for her. She's dropped a, a pound or two, which is pretty significant for a cat. So, and how did you? Was it just what you grabbed on the shelf, or how did you? Um... Uh, we, I think with all the pets, we try and keep their diets to a limited ingredient uh, diet. You know, it's uh, just trying to look at what is included in the um, in the meals. So, you know, from there, it's sort of a moving target and just finding something that they'll consistently eat. So it's not a difficult thing for us. But really, the the main criteria is just uh, limited. Like I said, limited um, ingredients and. Uh, I wouldn't say it's really a price-driven thing. Fortunately, we're in the position to sort of get whatever we think is best for them, and we don't cost isn't really that much of a factor. Okay, so a couple of clips for you to respond to. Um, totally, Celia. Yeah, any thoughts? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Absolutely. Okay, good. Okay, so the first part for your mom with the dry food, the prescription diet, no corn, no nothing, <laughs> made by a vet. Mm-hmm. Vets get no nutritional training. They get approximately one to two hours of nutritional training in vet school because they're being taught all the techniques, all the drugs, everything like that. So I'm kind of okay with it, to be honest with you, because after working in a vet's office and seeing how much information I need to know, then to throw dietary information on top of this, I get it. I mean, they're just going to swamp out. <laughs> so in most cases with most vets, and this is by no means any disrespect to veterinarians out there, most of them really don't know, and they're being told information from the big major pet retailers um, that want to sell their product. So the problem with pet food and the pet food industry is it's all driven by marketing um, instead of quality stuff. So, in that case, um, that also going with, was it Mike? Mm -hmm. Uh, His cat that was overweight. Um, Dry food is something that was made after World War II when we came back from the war, and all of a sudden it was like TV dinners and canned food and frozen meals, because once your husband was back from, you know, killing the bad guys, now it was time for the family to spend as much time as they could together and all this modern technology made it much easier and much more convenient. So, And you could eat, like, space-type food, like cool things, like TV dinners, instead of actually having to make a real deal with whole food. So at this point is when pet food was created. The first generation of cats went blind because they didn't realize that Tori needed to be used in the food. So it's been pretty much a hit-or-miss kind of guess thing since the beginning. Um, dry food or crackers? There's no real nutrients in dry food. Um, it's a convenient thing for us. It's for people that don't like meat. Dry food makes animals fat. It gives them dandruff. It gives them funky stool, 10 times the stool they should have because most of it's fillers. My pets do not eat dry food. Um, that being said, there are some better mar- better brands that are dry. The thing is, is what he was saying, too, about his pet not drinking a lot of water. <clears throat> the way that dogs and cats work, they get their moisture from their food. They shouldn't be drinking a lot of water out of a bowl. If they are, something's wrong. There's something that needs to go to the vet for that. Dogs and cats do not chug, ever. Right. So 
you want the moisture in the food because that's what they absorb and that's what they utilize more readily. So are you, are you saying that that um, we should be feeding our pets wet food instead of dry food? Or, or yes. Okay. Anything, anything kibble-based, I am not a fan of. I don't care if it costs you $50 a bag. <laughs> I don't care if it costs you $1,000 a bag. I don't care if, you know, the finest elk in all the land sacrifice their life for this product. Dry food just causes problems in the long run because dogs and cats don't eat crackers as a meal. That, so, that's basically what it is. But can, but a canned wet food can be inappropriate? Much better. Or the dehydrated he was talking about. Uh-huh. If there's moisture in the food, awesome. Frozen food, awesome. Raw food, awesome. Canned food, honestly, that's what I feed my cats most of the time because I'm so busy I don't have time to put together a diet every week for them. Um, but it's definitely something with the moisture in it. And for them, it's more exciting, too, because then it's like it's food. It's yeah. not crackers. It's not the same thing every day. There's Dogs and cats don't have very exciting lifestyles in many cases. This is a big deal for them. Let's like, let them enjoy it a little bit more. I recently heard the, co- the comedian Dimitri Martin comparing them to hostages, and it did make <laughs> totally. me, it I did mean, make and it's me like, think. Look, it's like your crackers. Yay! And you have these every day of your entire life. <laughs> and what I love is I get clients that are like, you know, I've been feeding my pet this food for six years every day, and today he hates it. It's like, dude, if I was your dog, I would have stopped eating it like five years and six months ago. So what did people feed their pets before? I mean, was it just that before, you know, World War II or the existence of table? People food, quote unquote. Just table scraps. Yep, table scraps. They would basically save the table scraps, give them to their pets, pretty much everything that we eat. There are some human foods, quote unquote, that aren't safe for dogs and cats, like chocolate, for example. Onions aren't great. Garlic's not great either. It can cause anemia in huge doses. Um, But basically what they do is just kind of save the food and dump it down and give it to their pets. And for the people that do have the patience to do that with their pets and are meat-centric in those cases, their pets thrive. They look great. They're never fat. They've got energy. They're happy. Their coats bleed. No dandruff. No gas. But what do you say? I mean, industry is very, I mean, for obvious reasons, but very um, firm on the fact that pet food offers quote, complete and balanced products and, and between 42 to 48 require nutrients, specific vitamins, minerals. Nah, 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 nah. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, I don't want to be flip about it. I apologize because I'm just jaded because I've been doing this for so long. But it's kind of like the same thing of like when somebody goes into the hospital and either gets around a chemo or a round of radiation and they give them that like insure stuff. And yeah. it's like, look, it's got all the nutrients, and all it's all sugar. Cancer feeds on sugar. You're basically taking someone, putting them in somewhere, a process to kill cancer, and then you're feeding the cancer two seconds after because they, quote, unquote, need nutrients. So, so there's a lot of illogical thought in nutrition because we're so out of touch with our food these days. Well, I, I think that's true, but... Um... I think it's interesting because our earlier guest, which I don't think you were able to hear, was talking, he had written about and he was talking about um, how the human food system is, in a way, quite in sync with this development of kibble and canned foods because because since we only eat about, I think he said, 40 or 50% of a cow is mm-hmm. kind of eligible for human food product in the way that it, our yeah. current processing works, that's where the rest of the the food goes and that it would actually be incredibly wasteful if we didn't have a way of using that food. Well, I mean, I agree with that. And I agree that in many cases, most of it can be used. It's things like 
It's really funny because if you look at dog food labeling, I mean, some of the companies out there want to do good things. Like the Honest Kitchen's great. Stella and Chewy's is amazing. Primal, I love them. Dr. Harvey's awesome. There's a lot of good companies out there that really do make good quality food, and I feel bad for them because the crappy companies that take advantage of the wording and the marketing of the dialect make everybody else look bad. Because they're stuck with the same vocabulary that everyone else is. Because there really are great foods. And it's like, the problem is, is that, here's a perfect example. I'm working at a vet, okay, and this dog comes in, the thing is bald. It's a shih tzu. Bald, it's miserable, it's anorexic, basically. Looking at the guy, I do the intake, so what are you feeding your pets? Well, you know, he eats kibble sometimes, but what he really likes, I feed him all the time. Okay, what do you feed him all the time? Newspaper and ice cream. Oh. Newspaper? Did you say newspaper? I swear to God. I swear to God. So I was like, How do you even discover cream, that? Really? And he looks at me and gets all pissed off and says, what? He likes it. Oh. So that's a problem, too, because a lot of people will just, you know, if they eat it, great. We're going to feed this because it's cheap. I mean, pets are expensive, and that's the bummer about having a pet. Um, if you feed them right, the good news is you're going to have a lot less disease, a lot less illness. I can almost guarantee this. I've been doing this for a long time. And there are the dogs that thrive on really, really lousy food and cats. I mean, it's like the uncle that smokes a carton of cigarettes every week, drinks a bottle of bourbon at night, and lives to be 104. Right. <laughs> you know, there are those anomalies in the animal world as well. But in this day and age, and with all these parts, like... In terms of the really cheap foods, if you look at the label and if it says meat, all we know is that it's something that lived on the earth. That's all we know from that. You want classifications like beef, chicken, bison, that kind of thing. If it just says beef or beef byproducts, then you're talking toenails, you know, like right. noses. Yeah. Right. Although what our what our previous guest was saying was like, in the end of the day, is that really so bad? If it has kind of nutrition in it and it's not really unnatural to eat that, humans... It's not, right. it's not that nutritious. I mean, if you take an animal in the wild, like a dog, like wild dog, like a hyena or like a tiger, I mean, these are extremes, but... Bear with me. So they're out in the Serengeti or wherever they are, and they hunt and they kill something. The first thing they eat is the stomach and the stomach content. Okay, the hyenas will drag away legs and muscle meat because that's what's left over. But all the nutrients really are in the internal organs. We never, animals don't really eat muscle meat unless they don't have a choice. Now they've evolved to it. Dogs like it, cats like it, tastes good, you know, but the organs are really where all the stuff is. So, yeah, toenails and hooves and, like, bones and stuff, they're good for a snack, but you're not going to get the complete nutrition off of that that you're going to need. You don't have to go the other end either and buy, you know, feel like y'all or, like, you know, fabulousness. Um, small doses, they're smaller than we are, so unless you've got, like, a 200-pound dog, you don't huge quantities. That's another thing is we overfeed our pets terribly in this century. Right. So that's coming back to our theme of uh, the connect, the parallels between pets and people and in, in what we eat. It, it was yep. it was through everything, our supply chain, the marketing that we experience and our kind of overabundance of calories. Yeah. Health related issues. So we could totally. obviously talk about this for a very long time. We know that. Oh my you- God. We could go for days, girl, anytime. <laughs> we know that you're time limited. Do you have any kind of final pithy advice for the concerned pet owner? What to think about? Let's say dog or cat. What I can tell you, the best thing to do, never walk into, if you walk into a pet store and go, give me the best food you got. And they hand you a bag of something, turn around, leave, find a mom and pop. Because if they're telling you that, they don't really know. We're all very different. Everyone is different. All our pets are different. 
So go to a small mom and pop pet pet shop, do a little bit of homework, sit down and talk to them. They'll give you far better information. You may pay a little bit more, but you're going to save tenfold in vet bills. All right. That's the advice from our our resident Heritage Radio Network expert. I want to thank you, Celia, for joining us today and for our Thank you so much. (laughs) We appreciate it. And our other guests, Craig Giamona and Jackson Landers, and all of our pet owners who shared their experiences with us as well. Our show co-producer is Jenna Liut, who joined me in the studio today, and our intern is Austin Brynarski. Show music by Tim Archer. Thank you to our sponsors and our show engineer, Liz Smith. The show is available on Heritage Radio Network's website or as a podcast at iTunes and Stitcher. And you can also find us on Twitter at EatMattersHRN. I'm Kim Kessler, and thank you for listening. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.